All right. Morning, guys. Let's uh, flip over to Romans chapter 6. We're going to keep going through Romans as we have been. By way of introduction, last week we finished the second half of Romans chapter 5. And uh, in multiple ways, it illustrates the fact that all of us were in Adam, that Adam fell, and that God condemned sin in Adam, and that all humanity was condemned in Adam. But through the act of one man's disobedience came condemnation, and death entered the world through Adam, both spiritually and physically. And then the other side of it is that through Christ, through his one obedience, obviously there was, he obeyed all the time, but through the one obedience, as it says there in Romans chapter 5, the being going to the cross, that the many are made righteous. So through one man, everyone fell, both spiritually and physically. And through one man, everyone was now enabled to enjoy life. The conclusion of that was that when, that, that when sin entered the world, death reigned. So it talks about sin reigning and death reigning. That humanity lost authority over itself. That death began to reign over us and kept us captive. And sin also reigned in our lives. And that the unregenerate person, someone who does not know Christ, can only do sin. That that's, that's what flows naturally out of us, right? But then when Christ went to the cross and died in his obedience and then was raised from the dead... All of a sudden, the authority was shifted. So it tells us there in the end of chapter 5, so that we might reign in eternal life through grace. So when death came in through Adam, the authority went to sin and death in our lives, and we're captives of it. When Christ went to the cross and rose again from the dead, his one act of obedience, we were restored authority through Christ, not in ourselves, but through Christ to now reign over death and sin. So that's the conclusion. And so far, or to the end where he says, look, where sin abounds in a, in a believer's life, where sin is, is there and it's happening, it's, it's being worked out in a, in, a, in a believer's life, grace much more abounds over that sin, right? That you cannot out the grace of God. Now it's interesting, and we read it last week and we'll read it again this week. In the beginning of chapter 6, Paul poses the immediate uh, question and, and, it, and a challenge, in kind of a legalistic way, and I think it's something that, that for many of us, we've talked about this many times, who live and operate in a completely uh, meritorious society, merit-based society, whether it's school or jobs or relationships. It's, we base everything on merit. Are you reliable? Are you not reliable? Do you invest? Do you not invest? Can I trust you? Right? It's all merit-based. How you treat me in a lot of ways is how I will reciprocate towards you, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's how we operate. So when God comes along and says, no, everyone was condemned in Adam, but now whoever believes in Christ, as Jesus said, whosoever will, is whoever accepts Christ as Savior, now they reign through grace in, in eternal life. Okay, And so as he picks up, he immediately asks this question in chapter 6, what shall we say then? So how do we answer this? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Oh, so if God's grace just abounds and covers every time there's sin in my life, well then, hey, you're saying I should just sin. Because if God gives grace for my sin, and that grace abounds every time I sin, and he gets glory from giving me grace, well then by me sinning, I'm actually getting grace and glorifying God. So he poses this question. I think it's a, it's a reasonable question, but it's a challenge to this idea that grace abounds over every sin. And I think for many of us, especially in like the subject of eternal security, which I'm absolutely an eternal security guy, and I'm not saying that to be argumentative. I'm just telling you where I'm coming from. And I'll be glad to talk to anybody at any time in kindness and unemotionalness afterwards to, to talk about that if, if you disagree with me. But coming from a, 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 that point of view, that, the, that we can push back even against this, that you're saying that there's always enough grace for my sin. Because we've always grown up in a time where we say, no, when somebody's bad, they get justice. That's what we want. But see, our justice was purchased in Christ. And because Christ bore the justice and the, the judgment and the wrath of the Father, he purchased for us the grace that we now walk in. Okay? 
So when we're addressing this question, so then, hey, should we just sin that grace may abound? Well, he answers it for us. And he says, by no means, or uh, don't even talk about that, or you know, different ways that that could be phrased in English. But the, the point, he says, no, nobody is saying that. Nobody is saying that we ought to sin or that, that, we, uh, that God is glorified by our sin. And then he's going to go on. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So now he asks, and it's a rhetorical question, and, and it's how can we? So what we're going to talk about in chapter 6 is a very exciting chapter, personally. Any person on the planet, any Christian, I should say, on the planet, any believer in Jesus on the planet or in this room who has ever desired victory over sin, who has ever desired to be different, who has ever desired to actually see Christ manifest out of their life, that is what chapter 6 is about. See, for many of us, we kind of, and I'm not insulting anyone because I've done the same thing. We have habitual sinful habits, whatever they might be, whether it's pride, we treat people poorly, whether it's porn, whether it's just sex, whether it's alcohol, whether it's bad attitudes, whatever it might be, all of us, I think, you know, the Hebrews labels it the sin which so easily entangles us. We might, if you've been around, I don't know if many Christian circles use it anymore, but it used to be called besetting sin, the sin that besets us easily, the idea that well, our weaknesses too. You know, and so for many of us, we have these weaknesses in our lives, things where we just always do it. Every time something happens, every time I get cut off in traffic, anger wells up inside of me. Every time I, I, I pass by a bar, I long to be in an altered mental status. You know, whatever it might be, things that they well up inside of us. And for many of us, how we've dealt with that for so many years, albeit oftentimes out of ignorance, is we just hope to be changed. We kind of we go to prayer groups or we go to Sunday morning and we hope that someday the, the finger of God is just going to come down and touch our spirit and we just won't sin that way anymore. And it's funny because the Bible makes it very clear. Yeah, sometimes there is instant deliverance. I've known guys. That has not been the story of my life. I'll be honest with you. I've had roommates. I had a roommate one time that he said he was a complete potty mouth and he just, whether it was perversion or cursing, he just, that's what flowed out of him all the time. And he really wanted victory and, and he was doing pull ups one day on, in, in one of those pull up bars in the house and it fell and it slipped and he fell on his bum and he shared some choice words. And he said he just cried out to God and then he never cursed again. I was like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> Right on, man. So I, I've, I've met a guy who I knew pretty well. I don't think he was lying, who was delivered from a heroin addiction overnight. Had a traumatic experience in his life. Ended up uh, going to the hospital. The, he cried out to the Lord, got out of the hospital, never even felt the urge anymore to be involved with that. That has not been the experience of many heroin addicts I've known through my life. So there is deliverance. And you say, James, how do I get that deliverance? I don't know. And I think for many of us, we've cried out for that kind of deliverance in our life, whether we say, Lord, I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to be proud anymore. I don't want to whatever, fill in the blank anymore. And then we get up the next day and we still do it. And we go, I don't know. And then we come up with words like stronghold. And I know I need to go to this special evangelist or this person over here can deliver me or this specific prayer. If I just pray, prayed the prayer of Jabez, then, if you were a Christian in the 90s, you know what that is, then, the Lord would expound my borders, and I would have victory. Look, I'm not saying the prayer of Jabez is worthless. I'm just saying that one person at one time, well, two evidently, because one wrote a book about it, prayed it, and something good happened to them. And we latch on to those things, and we say, well, then if I pray the prayer of Jabez, then this will happen to me. And then it doesn't, and we're left like, why not? That guy prayed that his borders would be expanded, and look, he's got a great job, and everything's perfect in his life, which obviously isn't true. But now I pray the prayer of Jabez, and where's my expanded borders? I just want to expand beyond pride. I just want to expand beyond lust. Why doesn't it change me? A lot of times, well, all the time, we're complicated beings. And we have an eternal soul. We have what we've been referenced here as a sinful nature. What we're going to find out about today is we have a new nature or a new man that was created by Christ, a new, a new life. And we're told that we have to choose to walk in that life. So sometimes in some lives, for whatever reason, and God only knows, and to him be all the glory, people just have instant deliverance from things. But in my experience personally, and in most of the people I know, that's not a normal life experience. 
to just have a besetting sin removed from you. Am I saying that God doesn't work? No, I am not saying that. Am I saying that it's by our own labor that we alleviate sin from our lives? No, I am not saying that. I'm saying that in chapter 6, Paul lays out in Romans how you and I, the dynamic at hand and how we can choose life in every situation. For me personally, when I think about these verses, and you need to think about them in whatever context they mean to you. And what I mean by that is this. You know what sin you wrestle with. You know what sins easily beset you. You know what clouds your judgment and things that you instantly walk in. When I look at this and I think about it, when I think about the church, yeah, you know what? The church universally, not necessarily ours, but universally, I always come back to this. Because to me, this is the most impossible sin. Where Jesus said, here is 13, John 13, 35. Herein shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So I'm not here to talk about having a devotional time and you're in sin if you don't or something like that. I'm not making a rule about it. I'm not here to talk about here's how you can stop sexing it up, although that might be true too. But I want to talk about what I would look at as like the most core issue of every human being's life that we all wrestle with. Loving our neighbor as ourself. To actually look at someone else who disagrees with me, dislikes me, whatever it might be, and say, to be able to look at them from the heart, not just consciously. Consciously is good. It's good to say, you know what, God calls me to love this person, so I want to act in a seemly way towards them. That is great. But you know what is better? Actually loving them. Being able to, like Jesus, look at a human being and say, I have compassion for you. Not get out of my face, bum, get a job. Oh, you might be able to evaluate and get to know someone and say, you know, I understand you're not working because you have this life pattern of sin where you have chosen laziness and to receive, but I still love you. I understand that you're an alcoholic and it may be 100% your fault because you've done nothing in your life to try to not be that, but I can still love you. If Jesus can say of the religious leaders of the day that ultimately would crucify him, that he loved them and how he would have gathered to them together like a hen gathers chicks to them himself. That picture of how a hen keeps the chicks warm, protects them, right? He says, that's how I would have done to you, everybody in Jerusalem. So if Jesus can look at those people and say, I want the best for you. I have a heart for you. That's where I think we can just bring this today. Everything else after that is honestly quite secondary. It was said, I believe it was uh, Augustine who said, love the Lord with all your heart and then do whatever you want. Because you know, that's the liberty we have in Christ to first and foremost say, I'm thankful for what you've done for me. I thank you for the cross. I thank you I'm set free. I think you have so much for me. Now I'm just going to walk with you. That's the picture of the garden, isn't it? Creation of man and woman walking through the garden, trimming trees, doing bonsai, harvesting, whatever it was they were doing. And then God would walk with them. Not an independence from God, but a life that they lived in joy and in peace and in security that was broken by sin. And now God says, I want to renew that life in you today, now, in this very moment. But it's going to come through renouncing sin. And first and foremost, it's going to come from renouncing self and self-love Self on the throne, self-authority. And instead relinquishing that and saying, Lord, I'm yours. And that's really what, what this verse, or I should say these verses, are all about. So he says, how can we still, who died to sin still live in it? Now we know that we died to sin, and that's what he's going to talk about here. Now think of it this way. It's not just that we've died to sin acts. It's that we've died to the sin nature. Who we are intrinsically. What Adam gave us, a sin nature... We've now, as a believer, died to that. And he's going to talk about how that works. The second thing that we need to consider in this is not that we've uh, just died to sin, but in the questionnaire, how can we live in it? It's not just saying, how could a believer sin? But the question that he's proposing is, how could a believer thrive and have life, abundant life in sin? So the answer is they can't, right? It's rhetorical. It can't be done. Now, there are some debates, and we don't have time to get into it today. Uh, and, and I've actually thought about maybe next Sunday doing a complete thing on this. But some people would use this verse and try to say, see, a believer will never have habitual sin. And to that, I would just say, oh, that's, be careful with that. Be careful what you label habitual sin. I think many of us wrestle with sin for years and years and years. Is that habitual? I mean, if it's a habit, 
Doesn't that make it habitual? So we'll talk more about that, how this relates with John 3 and the idea that he who practices sin, because if we're, if we're not careful understanding and working through what 1 John says in 1 John 3 and some other places, we can come to the conclusion that a Christian will never practice sin. But I'd be, be willing to bet if we went around this room, every one of us could probably point to something pretty immediately that we've wrestled with for our whole lives whether it's judgment or pride or hatred or lust or whatever it might be. And so then we have to tell ourselves, well, I'm practicing sin. And then we say, no, 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 no. Practicing is when you're trying to get better at something. Uh, that's a reach. We have to be careful with that. But in reality, when John 3, 9, and different places like that, the idea behind John's letter, 1 John 3, I should say, his letter to the church is not that, because the word practice actually isn't in there. It literally says the person who does sin. The truth doesn't abide in them. So who's that? <laughs> and he also says in the same letter, if any of us says that we have no sin, we are a liar. So wait a minute. The person who does sin doesn't have the truth in them, but the person who says they have no sin, that person's a liar. So which is it? One of the realities of 1 John and the realities here is this. 1 John is referencing the two natures. He says, anyone who commits sin is the son of the devil. See, the old nature commits sin. Sin always comes from the old nature. It always comes from the sin nature, who we were in Adam. Life and righteousness always come from Christ. That's the basis of 1 John. It's not a measure of life. It's a measure of fellowship. And in other words, all those verses are not measuring if you're saved or not. They're measuring, do you have fellowship with God or not? That's what 1 John is about. And so also here, when he's talking about it, he's not saying, how could a believer possibly continue in sin? Well, it's very easy. We can all testify to that. We just excuse it because he said, well, I asked for forgiveness for that. It doesn't mean it wasn't habitual. It doesn't mean we didn't do it. It means it's not accounted to us because we're in Christ. We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. But it doesn't mean it's not habitual. So we have to be careful with some of the things that we say. And I, we might talk more about that next week. We'll see. Because I think it's an important concept. Because the end of that doctrine is, I actually have to try hard. And I actually have to make sure that, that essentially, by me not sinning, that's how I keep myself going to heaven. And that's a risky business. But he says, how, so he's asking this question. How can we, who are sin nature, we've been severed from our sin nature. Remember, died isn't just cessation of life. It's the idea of being separated. When we physically die, our soul is separated from our body. When we, if we die without Christ and we spiritually die, we're separated from eternal life in Christ, right? So he says, how can we who died to sin be separated from sin, our sinful nature, how can we still live in it, thrive and be a part of it? Verse 3, you know. Now what's going to happen now, and in the next, until verse 11, he's going to say, you know, three times. And the idea here of you know, it's actually in the negative uh, in, the, in the Greek. It's like, or it says, do you not know? Uh, the idea is, are you, are you unaware? But he's making the point, we know this. The root word is from... The, word to, the same root is to know, uh, the idea of through experience. So what he's saying is, we know this. These are true facts. These are not things that may happen. These are not things that are conditional. These are not things that if you're good, then they'll happen. These are things, in the next three we knows, these are things that are true for every single person who has trusted Jesus Christ in the history of the world, including this room. They're true right now. And he says, we know, so he's, answer, he's answering his question, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, first and foremost, before we cover what that means, is he talking about water baptism? And he is not. And you say, how do you know? Because this word baptized, we don't have a lot of time, and so I'm not going to go through them. I'll list them for you. I wrote them down. See, made a list. You can look at... 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 1 Peter 3, 18, and Galatians 3, 27. And what you'll find in those verses is that the idea of being baptized, it means put into or immersed. Okay, that's what it means. So water baptism is that you are immersed in water. And it's a picture of actually the very truths we're going to talk about right now. So when he says that you've been baptized into Christ, into his death, he's not saying you literally, when you get baptized, that you have an ascension of faith, and then you go into a baptismal, and when you're at that point, go underwater, then you're in Christ. 
It's a complete mis. It's a complete wrong idea, miscommunication. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, Peter even says, it's interesting because he says, he's talking about Noah and some different things, and he says, which which baptism saves you, not the baptism of the putting off of the filth of the flesh, but of a clean conscience. In other words, Peter makes the point, we're baptized into Christ and we're saved, but he says, no, 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 it's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. It's not water. It's not taking a bath. That's not how it happened. It happens by that idea of I confess to Christ that I need his forgiveness, and then I'm regenerated, and I'm saved. So it's that appeal, that desire for a clear conscience that saves a person. Does that make sense? So we can spend a lot more time on that, and I, 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 I'm glad to do it. I really am. We just don't have time to cover it this morning. But we're going to talk about what he is saying. It's not water baptism. When you and I made our ascension of faith, when we got saved, when we were regenerated, however you would like to put it, when we trusted in Jesus Christ and what he did for our sin at Calvary, you and I were baptized, immersed in his death. We identify with his death. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way. We esteem that since one died for all, all were dead. Meaning we, we were all dead people. We were dead men walking because we were spiritually dead. So when Christ died for us, how did, why did Christ die? Did he die for his sin? No, he had no sin. He died for our sin. That's why sometimes we say it's a substitutionary death. That's why he was the perfect lamb of God because he embodied all the sacrifices of old in the Old Testament. So we were by God, not by ourselves, we were immersed in the death of Christ at the point of faith. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. He says, don't you know, this happened. He's not saying it could happen, it might happen. If you do enough, it'll happen. He says, no, when you first trusted in Christ, you were immersed in Christ's death. You died also. Not you, obviously you're still alive, you're still breathing. You weren't even there when he died. But your sinful nature, your nature in Adam, died with him. Now, what's death? Not just cessation of life, it's separation, right? So when we died with Christ, we were then separated from our old nature, okay? He's going to go on and talk about this a couple different ways. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, immersed in Christ, placed in Christ, and that is when we got saved through faith, were baptized, immersed into his death? Don't you know that, he says. Remember, this is the answer to the question, should we continue in sin, and how can we live in sin? Right? This is the answer. He says, you can't, because you are separated from that sin nature. It's not attached to you anymore. Just try to chalk this up in the context of this is the liberty and the freedom that you've been given in Christ. This is another reason why I'm an eternal security guy. You were severed eternally from your old nature. It has no power over you anymore. It cannot demand obedience from you anymore. Before we were saved, we did not have the Spirit of God in us, and we could do nothing but obey our old nature because our old nature was what came natural. Whereas now, as it's going to get to in a minute, we have a new life in Christ. We died with Him. We're severed from the old nature. It doesn't have power over us anymore. And now we're going to get a new nature that was created in Christ. So he says, verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, immersion, not water, immersion in Christ, into death. We were buried with him. A very stark uh, allegory or metaphor. We were buried with him. Right? He died. He was in a tomb. We, it's, it's, as, it's as if he bore, well, it's not as if he did, he bore... Our sin and our sin nature at the cross was crucified for our sin. And now when God looks at us, he says, you're buried with Christ. You were slain. Your debt was paid along with Christ. Why get all technical? Why go, this, why go through all this? Because walk out of here with a smile, folks. You've been separated from your sin nature. It doesn't have power over you anymore. You're not judged for it anymore. You're not destined for wrath anymore. It's as far as the east is from the west. 
God's not mad at you anymore because you were judged and buried with Christ. These are the truths of the gospel. This is why the gospel doesn't suck. This is why the gospel isn't boring. This is why the gospel is actually we're talking about. Because we're not going out there telling people, hey, we have a way that you can stop smoking and drinking. Hey, we have a way that you won't want to have sex anymore. We're going out there saying, you're totally destroyed. And you're judged and headed for hell. But God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Not just some, he died for you, amen. But that he actually took your sin your rancid thoughts, your hatred, your lust, your weirdness, and he bore it in his own body, and God judged him. And now God says, when you trust in what Jesus did, that he equates you of having already died, that your sin is paid for 100% in Christ. Amen. Man, we have a great God. We're going out of the, we're free. Amen. We're truly free. It's incredible. And now he's going to go beyond that. And he's going to say, look, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order. Why? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The whole reason he's equated us to be dead in Christ, the whole reason for what the cross accomplished is so that you can have newness of life. It wasn't for the purpose of condemnation. It wasn't, for, I mean, we come up with all sorts of weird ideas of what God is like. And he says, no, my whole plan was so that you could have the life that you were always destined for, that I always had planned for you, that I always wanted for you. So you can have Eden again. And then he says, that's why I've done all this. And he says, what happens is that we identify in his death and then just as, just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. The glory, it's a synonym, like the idea by, by his power, his might. The, the, the power and the might of the Father raised Jesus from the dead. We get that same life. We walk in a new life that was created in Christ. New means fresh, a fresh life. Completely separate from the old life. As Paul told the Corinthians, the old things have passed away. And the new things have come. And he says, now we have a fresh life that we walk in, just like Jesus walks in it. Just like Jesus got to walk in it because the Father gave it to him by his own power. He waited on the Father. He could have presumptuously taken it for himself. He's the Lord. But he waited for the Father. And the Father's glory elevated him to a place out of the grave where he has this new life. And since we have been judged to have died with Christ, we rightly and judiciously are judged to be able to live the new life with Christ and in Christ. That's why Paul says things like in chapter 8 where he says, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing past or present or future. You know, Future, nothing made. We have an incredible gift in salvation, gift in salvation. We have an incredible God who magnificently, judiciously, righteously laid out our salvation so that we're free from sin and alive to live with him. You know what people kind of argue and they get upset about the idea of cheap grace. You know what, for us, grace was very cheap. It cost us nothing but it costs God his son for us to enjoy. Not that we become more important than God. or Nobody's saying that. Just saying that he's given us an incredible gift that has everlasting power and everlasting merit and everlasting joy and peace and everything that comes with it. And he says, it's all for you. And it's through my son Jesus. We need to know that. We need to know that we're not powerless against sin. We're not victims to sin. We're, not, we're none of those things. We're reigning kings. We're a nation of kings and priests, we're told. That we reign in life through the grace of God, through Christ. He says, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, there's wide implications there. His body, his resurrection body, will receive resurrection bodies. We know that from other places. The, the quality of life, the heavenly life, all that. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Not just sin, but our sin nature. So he says, not only have we been died, we were crucified with Christ. 
Our old self, the old you, was crucified with Christ. Christ bore our judgment, our sin. And by that, Paul says, that old you was crucified with Christ. See, it's been dealt with. This is not some chintzy way, some super glue, you know, junk way of fixing something. This was an entirely done professionally, I don't know how you ought to put it, perfectly done way where it stands up in any court, in any way, in, in the glory, in the depths, wherever it might be, it cannot be challenged because you've been crucified with Christ and if you've been crucified with him, then you now will live the same life with him because you simply identify with him by faith and said, I need the forgiveness that he's offered to me. Then after that, he gives us a reason. He says, first he said so that we can live this new life. Now he's talking about something different. He says, we've been crucified with him that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It doesn't mean our bodies. Remember, sin is an entity from chapter 5, that sin reigned, right? So now he's talking about this body of sin. It includes the old nature. It's, it's, it's a, sin is an entity. So that that might be brought to nothing. Literally, the idea is that our sin nature would be rendered inoperative. You might have noticed that you have a sin nature, right? You, you are able to still sin. You're able to choose the old ways. You're able to choose doing what God has called us not to do, right? The very things that cause us death. We're all able to choose that. Maybe you've even had those moments in your life where you so have a desire to lash out or whatever it might be. It's just a burning craziness that you feel like you have to. That is the old nature, he does not say that when we were crucified with Christ that the old nature was annihilated or exterminated or never to be had again. He doesn't say that. He says that the crucifixion took place on our behalf so that we might that body of sin, our old nature, might be rendered inoperative. In other words, no longer have authority or power in our life. If it had been annihilated, then we would not have any inkling for sin anymore. There would be no urges anymore. But we still live in... This body, you know, we have an organic brain, all that kind of stuff. That all plays into this. But it doesn't have to have power over us anymore. You know, one of the reasons that we have to be careful, see, there's, there's a lot of victimization that goes on everywhere, right? I mean, there's victimization in, in assaults. There's a crazy amount. I, I was like a, about a million assaults happen uh, in the year, uh, in, in the U.S. every year, something like that. It breaks down to some crazy number. Like pretty much every day in the United States, there's like, Two, three thousand assaults that take place. Think about that. Every day, three thousand people are getting assaulted, and then like sexual assaults end up being like 2,100, and then the other assaults are like I can't remember. But anyway, it's a lot. Whatever, it's a crazy amount, right? So every day there's these, there's this, there, this, this sin that's going on. There's this radical stuff that's happening. There's people acting out on their sin. It's 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 not done away with. It's, it's not rendered inactive, right? But you and I, we don't how longer have to be enslaved to sin. Not just sin acts, but the sin nature. So we have to be careful when we, that there, that we don't, when we look at the fact that there are victimizations in the world, that we don't assume a victim stance. You see what I'm saying? If we get victimized, somebody rips us off, somebody assaults us, somebody ridicules us, whatever it might be, if we get victimized in some way, the reason we want to push people to not live in that victimization is because victimization does something weird. It, it, it promotes entitlement. Now, are people who are victimized, did they, should they get opportunity to heal from that? Of course. Are we saying there's, that there's no, uh, no validity to healing and restoration of victimization or, or even you know, getting back if you've been stolen from it? No, we're not saying that at all. But we live in this weird time right now where if you're a victim, it actually becomes an identity for a lot of people. And they live from that place of victimization. And when a person lives from a place of victimization, they believe that they're entitled to things. You can't say this to me. You can't treat me this way. You can't do this. I can treat you this way. I can act this way because I have been victimized. And so the thing about sin and what's happening here, a lot of times we, if we act like, oh, we have no power, we justify. 
So in knowing that we have power over sin and what God has done for us and not walking as sin victims or victims to our own sin, and you've maybe said it or heard people say, oh, the devil made me do this. Or this spirit made me, I have the spirit of pornography on me, and so it makes me watch porn. Or I have the spirit of theft on me, and it makes me steal things. Kind of removing ourselves from our own sin, distancing, displacing. It's not me, it's this spirit that jumped on me. And that spirit that jumped on me was from my parents. And so it's not even my fault. And then we come to this place and we stay victimized in sin. Whereas the Bible comes along and says, no, 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 no. You don't have the spirit of pornography. You just love pornography. And that's, we'll work through that. There's victory. No, no, no. You don't have the spirit of theft upon you. You're a thief. You don't have the spirit of rage. You're proud. It's, what, it's, it's your old nature. See, we have to get away from any kind of displacing our sin. There will never be victory for the victim. Victory only comes to those who will acknowledge, yes, if it's an outside source, this has happened in my life, which has caused this fallout, this PTSD, or these difficulties emotionally. Absolutely. But for any, to try to blame sin on anyone, instead of coming right back here and saying, no, 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 yes, I feel like lashing out, I feel like this, I feel like that, that's what I want to do, but that's not my new nature. I'm not a victim to those things. I'm severed from those things. I don't have the right to treat people poorly because I've been victimized. I don't have the right to treat people poorly because I just, it's just not my fault. What people do to you is it's not your fault. But what you do to people is always your fault. And we need to own that. And so when we're talking about like loving, when we first started this whole thing, we're talking about loving one another and these type of things. When we don't love someone else, it is never their fault. It is never their fault. If we don't love some, the, someone else, it's never their fault. Mark my words. Who did Christ love? The unlovely. Specifically, those who could not be loved. So we need to be honest about ourselves and, and these things. And this is just our context for how this can work out in our lives. That when we find that we despise or hate, that is no one's fault but our own. But now we have victory in Christ. Now we don't have to walk in that. Now we don't have to be given to that. We can actually, we know that we've died with Christ. We know that we've been crucified with Christ. We know that he created a new life when he rose from the dead. We know that that life is given to us through grace by God the Father. We know that the Holy Spirit is attached to us. See, we are no longer enslaved to sin. And he's going to go on and expand on that. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You died in Christ. I died in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're set free from sin. This is the harsh news. This is the rough news. When we sin, it's because we darn well wanted to. Now, it may be habitual, and it may be a way that our brain just always works that way. A habit is, you can literally watch a habit happen in someone's brain. I encourage you, go onto YouTube. It's not hocus pocus. Go onto YouTube and look at some of the new scans they do. You can honestly watch the neural pathways in a person's mind, light up with electricity when they're doing something they do habitually, whether it's like shaking a pen or it's how they throw a ball, all sorts of crazy movements. You can watch that. A habit, a physical habit, and even to some extent a, 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 an emotional habit, is a well-traveled neural pathway in your brain where current has actually established and your brain has grown synapse and circuitry to constantly fire that habit. It's very fascinating. So we have eternal souls, and we have organic brains, and we have to overcome habits sometimes. It's interesting, because that's a lot of what rehab is, is overcoming habit, retraining the brain. Doesn't our, it's funny, if you go and you read the big book from any rehab center or AA, you're like, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago about how addiction works. The Bible puts it this way, renewing your mind in the word. We say we're changing our neural pathways. The Bible says, no, you're renewing your mind in the word. Whereas my neural pathway may always go to hate or jealousy or anger, the Bible says I can interrupt that. I don't have to be a slave to my body or my spiritual old nature. I can say no to that, and I can say yes to God. I am not a slave to sin anymore, and neither are you. 
It just sin feels good because of those dang neural pathways. It's really bizarre. So he goes on, he says, now, uh, if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We've covered that. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Now, this is just to make a side note. He is not crucified every Sunday when you take communion. Okay? He died once for all for sin. And he rose from the dead. Now, for many of us, we're Protestants. We're like, oh, yeah, of course. What are you talking about? Hundreds, if not thousands of Christians were slain. Because of what I just said. So just know, it was important enough to Satan to kill thousands of people when they came along and said, no, 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 the Bible said that Christ died once for all, and now we have victory in him. Satan hates that truth. And he used people appearing to be religious to come through and kill families, burn them at the stake, pour lead down their throats, molten lead, all because they were saying this. No, no, no. He, he, was, he died once for all. He's the victor forever. So it's a side note for us, but it's, it has not been a side note through history. He says there, verse 9, We know that Christ being raised from the dead, so he died once, and now he's raised, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Well, if death no longer has dominion over him, what does that mean for us? Death has no dominion over us. Why? Because we live in Christ's life. How? Through the grace of God. What venue? Through faith. So we have this same victory. We have this new newness of life. Verse 10. For, death he, for the death he died, he died once to sin, once for all. He died, uh, the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. So here's the crux. You know this, right? You know you died. You know you've been buried. You know you've been raised. And now he says, consider. Literally, count it up and get the sum. That's what it means by consider. Some of your Bibles might say reckon. It's literally a financial term. Count up what I have just said. Paul, has, Paul says, not what I've just said. Count up what Paul has just said. And now here's the sum. This, now consider this. This is what it means. Consider yourself dead to sin. That's what it means. Not just to sin acts, but to sin, the sin nature. It no longer has power over you. Right? It doesn't mean we don't need help. It doesn't mean there's not a place to pray with one another. Nobody's saying that. We need all that support. It doesn't mean we don't need worship music in our cars or whatever it might be. That's all support to continue to reinforce this idea. Sin has no dominion over me. The only dominion that sin has, the only, the only dominion that my bad attitude has is the dominion I give it. The only dominion that my lust has is the dominion that I give it. The only dominion my rage has is the dominion that I give it. It's what I provide for it. It's so important, guys. It's so important that we know this, that we reckon it. If Jesus told us that the whole world, that every human being, and I tell you what, man, I, I, don't, I didn't live in Jesus' day, so I couldn't tell you. But if there is anything at all that stands out in the world that we live in today, it would be love because we live in a place of hate and judgment and cruelty and unreasonableness. That's where we live. So someone who stands up and instead loves and manifests out of their heart in every situation, take the hot topics. Hey, you know what? I don't want to get vaccinated, you might say. But I love my job and I love you, but it's just not a place I can go. If you have to fire me, you have to do what you have to do. Versus, you know what? Satan take you, you and your devil juice, and your and I'm not gonna, and forget you, and you're stupid. God's judgment be upon your head, right? By the way, I'm a Christian. We have services at 9 to 10.30. You know, God bless you. Jesus loves you, right? Who's gonna stand out? If we spew judgment and wrath on people. We'll just fulfill what they already think Christians are. Let's be honest. If we lovingly, respectfully just say, I can't go there, they may not agree with us, they may still hate us, but you will stand out to them. Because Jesus told us straight up, herein shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so we have power to love. 
We have power to, to say no to ourselves. We're, just real quick, these last couple of verses. Let not sin, therefore reign. Let not. In other words, sin can reign in your mortal body. It can. But you don't have to let it, and neither do I. Let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That sin nature and its passions, its desires, its cravings. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. The word uh, instruments there, it's, it's mostly used in the New Testament as, as uh, military weapons. Do not present your, your members, your, your, your eyes, your legs, your, your hands, you know, fill in the blank. Don't present your members to unrighteousness. In other words, do you see the picture here? Every time we sin, what is it? It's presentation. The urge rages up, whatever it might be. Lust, hate, pride, whatever it might be. It rains up inside of me. I have that urge. And then I can present. I can present my mouth. Here you go. I'm offering my mouth to you, sin nature, for you to use. And now I will spew my vile, gossipy garbage and judgment on everybody around me. And I will defile them. I presented my mouth for unrighteousness. I can present my eyes to observe things, my ears to hear things that are only going to promote rage and anger and hate and lust in my life and then wonder why I have no victory. So he says, don't do that. It's, it's all voluntary here. Instead, he says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments from righteousness. I like how he says it. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. There's an acknowledgement. Lord, I'm yours. I know what I came out of. It is still alive in me. And I want to judge and I want to hate and I want to gossip. It feels so good to give that juicy you know, morsel of how everybody else is lame except me. And I'm, you know, all these, the things that we do and we just pour out on people. I know that's where I've come from, but that's not who I am. I've come from death into life, and now I'm presenting myself to you as in life. See, this is where sin is. This is where the battle is won and lost. We say, we talk about victory. We talk about the battle of the Christian life. We talk about soldiering on. We talk about the promised land. That is the promised land. And every time that we reject it and say, no, the flesh is so much better, we just take a step back. And we do the work of Satan, and we do it in ourselves, or unfortunately, we spew it on other people too. And Paul is coming along and saying, no, you have, it's not who you are anymore. You're, not, you're separated from that nature. It has no authority or power over you anymore because of Christ. You've been given grace in the Holy Spirit that you can say no to that. You can actually present yourselves literally in that moment, say, no, my arms, my mouth, it's not going to spew that out. Lord, my mouth is yours as one from death to life. It's yours. That's how you have victory. We have to stop waiting for God to just zap us. I'm just going to walk along and all of a sudden, bzzz, I love everyone all the time. <laughs> that is not real. What is real is when we're walking down the road and something happens and we go, you sis. Lord, you love that person. I confess I do not. But Lord, I want your love in my heart. And I'm not going to gratify my sinful nature on presenting my members for destruction for me and for this other person. That is victory, my friends. That's the promised land. Remember in the promised land, what did the Jews do in the promised land? They fought with swords. There was slain. There were giants. There were things to overcome. Now God got all the victory, but they still had to strap on a sword and walk out every day. And in their case, Unfortunately, bloodily hew down people. We have to strap on our sword, the word of God, and we have to hew down ourselves. That's our job. To say, no, I'm one that's come from death to life. And he says, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And he's gonna talk more about that, and we will too. But he says, look, sin is not imputed to you anymore. This is the last part of the truth. Forgive me for, for going over but this is really, sin is not imputed to you anymore. Sin never again gets deposited into your account because you're not under the law. You've died to the law. The first verse of, the first section of chapter seven is that we have died to the law. The law no longer applies to us as for imputation for sin. It does not. Can you sin? Sure. Remember we talked all about that where there's no law, there's, that sin was still sin. 
we can still disobey God. We can still not walk in what he has for us, and that will still reap destruction in our lives. It will still form our personalities and our souls into that which is repulsive, and will have to be burnt away in a 1 Corinthians 3.10 type of fire before we can come into heaven, though he himself shall be saved, as the scripture says. So you can build with wood, hay, and stubble. You can ruin your life, but sin is not imputed to you because you are under grace and not under the law. Another reason why I'm an eternal security guy. When you sin, it is not imputed to you. And you go, whoa, that's crazy. It's all we've been talking about, that Christ paid it all. Sin still has fruit. It still destroys, but it does not send the believer to hell because it's no longer, there's, there's no law for you. We walk by the Spirit and not by the letter, First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians tells us. And so you and I, we don't want to squander our salvation. We don't want to walk out of here and go, well, I'm saved, it's good enough, and I, I, you know, I, feel, I feel bubbly inside because we talked about grace today. No, we want to go out of here and say, Lord, I want to live. If you gave me this eternal life, I want all the eternal life. I want to walk in eternal life. I want to be eternal life for those around me. I want to be a blessing and a, and a, uh, a, a force by your grace and your kingdom. I want to be one of those people that when they're around me, that people walk away better off than they were. Not a person that is a Christian that just spews garbage on people and then wonders why we're all miserable. God has great things for us. Father, thank you for your word and the truth. Lord, thank you for these tremendous letters that we have and the tremendous grace and freedom that we have in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would go out of this place relishing and reveling in that. Lord, we boast in the Lord. You're our only boast. You're the only thing we have to brag about. And you're very, very worth it. You're the king of glory. You're the friend of sinners. And we'd be lost without you. But we worship you, Lord. You're very kind. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.